This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. The time is 1700 hours Central African time on the dot and you're listening to Channel Africa giving you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg and we're available online on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samara Magesi in studio with Onilin Sinsi, Tracy Boomgaard and Neto Chimani. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour... At least 17 demonstrators were killed when scores uh, and scores sustained serious injuries in Sudan when security forces moved in to clear the main demonstration camp outside army headquarters. Three South African scientists, part of a team whose research may hold the key to pain management in humans. In economics, Zimbabwean president will travel to Australia later this month in a bid to spread his Zimbabwe's open for business message. And lastly in sport, FIFA president Gianni Infantino looks set to be uh, re-elected uh, and opposed when the football governing body holds elections on Wednesday. Mazone Lentzinsi, hello, how are you? Happy Monday. Happy Monday. Is it a happy Monday for you? No, it is not. <laughs> I had the absolute pleasure of going all the way to Sun City in Rustenburg here in South Africa yeah, I saw to you. attend the South African Music Awards. I got to present two awards, actually, uh, Best Male and Best Female. So that was quite the honor. Saw that. Well, you sounded like somebody who works for Channel Africa, if I should say so myself. <laughs> well wow. wow, 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 wow. Anyway, you know, uh, in life there are always those people that are going to take your achievements and try and bring them closer to them. But anyway, let's cross on over to the news desk right now. Here's Anilin Sinsi with your latest news bulletin. Thank you, Samora. Three suspects accused of belonging to a terrorist cell affiliated to the Islamic State group have been arrested in Morocco. The three men, aged between 26 and 28, are said to have been in the process of preparing terrorist attacks in the kingdom. The suspects adhere to the extremist ideology of IS and try to recruit and enroll people to prepare their terrorist plan. Until last year, Morocco had been spared jihadist attacks since 2011 when a bomb attack on a cafe killed 17 people, most of them European tourists. Sudan's military rulers have denied attempting to break up a protest sitting by forcing the capital Khartoum, saying people are allowed to move freely. Around 12 people are known to have died after the military council reportedly attempted to break up a sitting outside the army's headquarters. The military asked President Omar Bashir in April after months of protests over his 30 years in office. But protesters continue to camp outside the defense ministry, demanding that military rulers who replaced al-Bashir hand over power to civilians. The BBC's Will Ross. These latest attacks against protesters are yet another sign that at least some senior members of the Sudanese military have had enough of the protesters' demands and have no intention of handing over power to a civilian administration. On the streets of Khartoum, people are pointing the finger at the notorious paramilitary unit known as the Rapid Support Forces. It was set up in order to help keep the former president Omar al-Bashir in power and has its roots in the Darfur conflict which began in 2003. Then known as the Janjaweed, this militia carried out frequent massacres. 
Meanwhile, the European Union on Monday called on Sudan's military leaders to allow people to protest peacefully and urged a speedy transfer of power to civilians. Protesters continue to camp outside the Defence Ministry, demanding that military rulers who replace al-Bashir hand over power to civilians. Uganda is hosting millions of pilgrims, including from Tanzania, Kenya, DRC, and the world over, as it, commem- as it commemorates its martyrs of faith. Every year on June 3, the 23 Anglican and 22 Catholic converts to Christianity who were executed on the order of Kabaka Mwanga of Bunganda between the 31st January 1885 and 27th January 1887 are remembered at the Namugongo Matthias Shrines. Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni has been rather on the custom in recent years used the occasion to eulogize Tanzanian President Julius Nyerere. Lastly, U.S. President Donald Trump and First Lady Melania Trump have met Queen Elizabeth on the first day of the state visit to the UK. The pair went to Buckingham Palace for a private lunch and welcome ceremony. They are due to lay a wreath at the tomb of the unknown soldier at Westminster Abbey before a state bouquet minutes before arriving in the UK. Mr. Trump criticized the mayor of London with whom he has clashed in the past, the BBC's Rob Watson. British politicians would be lining up to uh, associate themselves with the United States president, hoping that some of the sort of the glitz and the glory would rub off. But I mean, for most British politicians, not all of them, I mean, I think some of the hardcore Brexiteers, they love the sort of disruptive element of Donald Trump. But for most British politicians, he's seen as being toxic. Channel African News, I'm Onilentinti. This is Africa Digest. In Khartoum comes a report from Khartoum comes a report that at least 17 demonstrators were killed and scores sustained serious injuries when heavily armed security forces moved in to clear the main demonstration camp outside Sudan's army headquarters. Thousands of young men and women have been taking turns to camp outside the defense ministry and the focal point of anti uh, government protests that started in December. The United States Embassy in Khartoum has condemned the violence, saying attacks against protesters and other civilians are wrong and must stop. James Shimanula reports. The situation remains tense around al Qiyada al-Amma, Sudan's military headquarters complex in Khartoum, where thousands of demonstrators have pitched camp since December last year to push for the establishment of a civilian government. The country's military council has promised several times to hand power to civilians, but its promise has failed to bear fruit. According to Sudan Professional Association, 17 people have lost their lives. The city near the army headquarters has been a magnet point for protesters to demand the transitional military council, in short, MTC, hand power to a civilian government. The demonstrators and activists, as well as dozens of poets and drummers, have been going round the scene of the sitting 
by demonstrators singing to keep up morale of the demonstrators. As demonstrators sang a revolution song, they were stopped by gunfire which rent the air on streets close to the army headquarters. Shortly after the gunfire had stopped, Major Bashir Mohammed, speaking in Arabic, made the following remarks on behalf of the ruling military council. Crucial talks are taking place between the military council and the leaders of the demonstrators. However, we cannot accept the continued sitting of demonstrators here outside the military headquarters. People that continue to sit here are breaking the law. Samir Suleiman, one of the activists that have joined the demonstrators, did not mince words when he said, We are not going to stop demonstrations. We shall continue demonstrating and sitting here. All that we are demanding is what we have been fighting for. That is the formation of a civilian government and not military civilian government. And this is how another activist who did not want to be named remarked in Arabic. We are not leaving this place. No, we are here to stay. We are saying and repeating to say that we want a civilian government, the military council, has officers that are nothing but great liars. They are liars. Also taking part in the sitting at the army headquarters are hundreds of women. Listen to what this woman speaking in Arabic said. All that the people gathering here want is a civilian government. We want to live in a country that is peaceful with the peaceful citizens. One of the women demonstrators that has vowed to continue with the sitting at the army headquarters in Khartoum. Shortly after the sound of gunfire died down, Leaders of demonstrators and activists were seen running security checkpoints to stop undercover security agents from entering where demonstrators were sitting. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Bringing it back to South Africa right now, the South African soldiers operating as United Nations peacekeepers in the Democratic Republic of Congo have fought and defeated a faction linked to Islamic State organization. This is according to the South African National Defense Force, otherwise known as SANDF, which has commended the soldiers for their bravery during the ambush last week. One South African peacekeeper was reportedly shot in the right foot during the attack and is in a stable condition. For more on this, Channel Africa spoke to Piki Khriev, South African National Defense Union spokesperson. These soldiers were uh, led into an ambush by certain of the rebel groups that, of course, they are deployed to combat there. 
who are destabilizing the region. And, um, uh, you know, there's a military doctrine that states that the only way to get yourself out of the ambush is to shoot your way out. And that, of course, requires uh, very, very good skills and mm. very good training so that you can stay calm under fire and know what you have to do to get out of the situation. And that's exactly what the South African soldiers did. Have the soldiers been able to, to regroup um, uh, following this ambush um, to sort of resume uh, their main mandate? Yes, no, they, they definitely they managed to regroup. Uh, this is one of many skirmishes that they've been having over the past few years. We must remember that this deployment also takes uh, place under the auspices of the United Nations, mm-hmm. um, and, and it's a peace enforcement operation. So, you know, they are very well equipped and very well supported. Um, but still, you know, it's no mean feat to get yourself out of an ambush where you're sure. outnumbered. Now, what is it that we know, Picky, at this stage around um, the Allied Democratic Forces and its so-called links uh, to the Islamic State? No, I don't think one should, uh, you know, pay much credence to, or at least one should not go under the misimpression that um, Islamic State and the ADR are one and the same thing or absolutely affiliated affiliated to one another. Not all ADR are pro-Islamic State and vice versa. Um, so, you know, if one, one should not pay too, or give too much weight to, to that in itself. Uh, I think one should rather view it as a rebel groupings that destabilizes the region with their own agendas, and that's exactly why the UN is there, to try and bring stabilization into Central Africa, or at least the Democratic Republic of the Congo, so that, uh, you know, um, trade and, and those kinds of uh, social and economic activities can continue mm, mm, as normal. Mm. Now, of course, this is not the first time that uh, soldiers were ambushed in, in this region. Um, Becky, last year we saw um, uh, two South African peacekeepers wounded um, in a rebel ambush near uh, the, Epi- the Ebola epicenter. Would you say that the soldiers are, are sort of adequately equipped and prepared to deal with these possible threats uh, posted by these militant groups? Because this is certainly was not the first time that we saw an ambush of this nature. No, look, they, they're perfectly equipped for it and, and, and trained for the job and I think the UN gives them great support and so does the SNDF. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is, you know, one shouldn't think that just because one is being ambushed or being attacked, that means you're ill-equipped or ill-trained. That's mm. not the situation. Mm-hmm. I think everybody has appreciation for the situation. We knew that there are uh, factions who are willing to wage war to uh, execute their own agendas and that's exactly why a, a peace enforcement operation was launched by the UN. Remember, there's a difference. Uh, Peacekeeping is just uh, a non-aggressive kind of, uh, Mm. you know, checking that everything is in place. Peace enforcement, however, is something completely different. different. Mm. That gives, that implicates a mandate where you can uh, militarily engage the the combatants Mm. that's uh, trying to destabilize the region. And that was Piki Khriyev, South African National Defense Union spokesperson talking to Zikona Miso. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Hi, Nelson Hodesasap Mandela. And I solemnly and sincerely promise that we'll always promote all that will advance the Republic and oppose all that may harm it. And maintain the Constitution and all other law of the Republic. I, Matamera Siro Ramaphosa, swear that I will be faithful to the Republic of South Africa. So help me God.
Channel Africa. International donors have pledged to contribute 1.2 billion US dollars to help rebuild areas and infrastructure destroyed by cyclones Kenneth and Adai in Mozambique. According to the United Nations, this is less than half the amount the government says is needed. UN Secretary General has called for a generous response from the global community, saying that this is the time to translate into concrete gesture the solidarity with the country that has suffered one of the worst environmental disasters ever experienced in Africa. Channel Africa's Milton Maluleke reports. The today's conference that started on, uh, on Friday and ended on Saturday, uh, whereby uh, $1.2 billion uh, were provided to the government of Mozambique to uh, reconstruct the area that was destroyed by the Idai and Kenneth cyclone. Talking in the end of this uh, conference, the president of Mozambique, uh, Philip Jacinthinos, just said that the money that was given to the country will not only be used in the agriculture sector, but in the trade and uh, industry sector also. And uh, he provided the details of the area that were destroyed, saying that seven provinces uh, around the center and north, they were destroyed and uh, 90% of the telecommunication and transport uh, infrastructure was destroyed. So the money will uh, help to rebuild everything that was destroyed because of these two cycles that hit the center and the north of Mozambique. And they spoke also about the large area that was destroyed and the people that were left homeless and uh, without food because of the expressions that uh, happened around the, the two cyclones that hit Mozambique. That's something that happened happened for the first time in that country. Reporting to Channel Africa from Maputo, I'm Milton Malulek. The time is now 17.18 Central African time. You are still listening to Africa Digest with myself, Samora Mangesi. Happy Monday. We hope that you are enjoying your day so far. If not, Channel Africa is always here to make sure that that frown is turned upside down from an African perspective. And we are officially in the month of June. Right now, moving along to some science. Three scientists at South Africa's University of Pretoria are part of a team whose research on African mole rats has led to a discovery that may hold the key to pain management in humans. The team's research found that uh, these rodents are insensitive to many different types of pain. The findings have been published in the latest issue of the prestigious American Research Journal. To shed some light on the issue, we are joined on the line by Dr. Heike Litterman, a zoologist at the university. Hello, Dr. Litterman, how are you? Hi there, I'm good, thank you, and you? Very well, thank you. First of all, let's just talk about research uh, in animals translating to humans. Are we actually compatible? Are we actually the same? <laughs> no, but we, don't, we certainly share a lot of common features, like our structure, our neurology in this case is quite similar, and we might learn something from the animals that we can apply. After all, um, all medical research employs a lot of research on mice or chimpanzees, so um, we can definitely benefit from it, even if there are differences. Now, Doctor, could you give us a brief background on this research and why you felt it was so necessary? So um, this is initiated by a colleague of mine, Dr. Gary Lewin from um, the Max Delbruck Institute in Berlin, who is interested in pain research for a long time. And my colleagues here, Prof. Bennett and um, 
Daniel Hart, we come more from the side that we've been working for a long time with African morads who are very fascinating because they're quite unique animals. And they live in a very extreme environment that has low oxygen, high carbon dioxide, and very toxic diet, actually. Um, so these two things came together. And um, my colleague noticed for another morad species, for one more morad species that people might be familiar with, the naked morad. Um, he tested about 10 years ago their pain perception because obviously pain is, is part of a lot of diseases in human and management of pain is, is a big challenge, in particular with chronic pain. And it turned out that naked morites who come from um, Kenya are insensitive to capsaicin, which is what causes the burn in the chili peppers. Um, so now he wanted to, to see whether that could be extrapolated to other morite species. And we have quite a few of those in Southern Africa, and particularly in South Africa. So he contacted my colleague, and that's how it first was initiated. Now, Doctor, could you take us through how the research was carried out? What did you explore? And could you please put it in terms that uh, as people who do not have your MBCH, MBCHBs uh, can understand? I'll try my best there. <laughs> so um, essentially, we have a lot of animals here. So what happened here in South Africa was more what most people will understand. We injected the animals in their paws with highly diluted substances such as your capsaicin, that's the chili, um, also with acids, and with um, mustard oil that you know from your um, wasabi, for example, uh, or radish that causes the burn. And we were interested what the animals respond. And some species respond like what you do, you rub your eyes. They flick their paws because that's where we injected them or they lick them, which we take as an indication that they actually perceive pain. And we took videotapes of this to see how long it might take and how strong the response were. And with that already, it took, turned out that some species didn't respond at all with flicking or licking. Um, and then my colleagues from Germany um, went on um, to take tissues, so specifically the nervous tissues that transmit information from your extremities to the brain. And that's where you actually perceive the pain. And did some experiments on them, so they did that at the molecular, at the cellular level, where we look at cell forms, and they look at ion channels. And those ion channels are quite important um, when it comes to transferring information along um, neighboring cells. But they also looked at gene expression, which genes are read out, and whether those different between different species of morads to see whether we can pin down how exactly the mechanism works. So why would some species not perceive or show this response, uh, flicking their, their um, paws or licking them, and others do. And it turned out, so in total, we checked eight species of morads, of African morads. Those guys only occur here in southern Africa. And surprisingly enough, it's not just the naked morads that do not respond to some, to some of the substances that we had four species for other species that wouldn't respond to all of the substances. So no matter what you injected in them, they showed no response. And the most striking one was then the high salt morat, which comes from the Houten region. You will find it probably if you have some mounds in your garden or on golf course, they like those quite a bit. Um, most likely it's this species. So we don't really know what they look like and see that. Most people won't, but they will have know them due to activity. And these guys didn't respond at all to wasabi, like the mustard oil that we injected in these animals. And we initially did this at very low dosages because we obviously didn't want to do harm to the animals. 
that we increased eventually to 100% um, where the scientists doing the experiments actually had to wear gas masks uh, to protect themselves, but the animal didn't even flinch when it was injected. Um, and there's no other animal known in the world not to respond this, so we usually avoid it. That's why you eat your sushi with low, small amounts of wasabi. But these guys can take it. Um, and it turned out, depending on which species, when it comes to pain reception, that they have had changes either in the way the cells and ion channels were structured or in the expression of genes. Um, so which ones were read out by the machinery of the cell. And with this particular species, the hypomorites, um, it turned out that they had a total change in the genomic structure so that they couldn't perceive um, the pain. Now, Doctor, you've mentioned different kinds of mole rats, um, and, and you've also mentioned where we can find them within Southern Africa. However, why was the decision to specifically use mole rats taken instead of maybe uh, a brown rat or black rats or maybe even the long-haired rat or bush rat? So, um, obviously, a lot of brown rats have been... Uh, playing a key role in, in medical research for a very, very long time. And we know from these animals that they do respond just like us. So they find these um, substances very painful. Um, however, my colleague 20 years ago or so, he stumbled across naked mole rats. And they're quite unique in many ways because they're very resistant to cancer, so they almost don't get any cancer. Um, they're hairless. Uh, they have a very unusual social structure. So he was really interested in these animals, and they've done quite a bit of research on them, um, in particular medical research. So the medical community has taken note of these animals for the past 10 years or so. But they usually don't have access to other species of mole rats, but there's more than 40 species that we know. So the consideration here was whether something specifically, because you also have a great diversity in, in social structure. So you have animals that live like bees with a queen and a king, and they're only ones that reproduce. Uh, and they can have groups of up to 300 animals. And then you have species that occur, for example, um, the Cape Morat, that is a solitary animal. So it lives alone. It's actually very grumpy, uh, not very friendly to its conspecific. And the idea here was to see whether the differences in social structure, but also in different habitats that live in. Some occur in deserts, others occur in very moist habitats, would have an effect on how they perceive pain, how they respond, and how whether they have taken different evolutionary roles, roads, routes, sorry, um, to deal with the problem. Because all of them have in common that they live in a very hostile habitat. Now, Dr. Letterman, um, what is the ultimate goal or the ultimate objective with regards to this research? Um, do you think that this discovery could lead to the development of highly effective painkillers for humans, maybe? Um, it certainly would be the first step. I mean, I'm a zoologist, so this is not my area of expertise. But um, if you look at your regular painkillers, such as your ibuprofen, for example, it's, it's a useful drug, but it's very unspecific. You take it, and it will essentially affect every kind of cell in your body because it targets um, a cascade that triggers things such as inflammation and suppresses them. Now we have identified certain ion channels in the cell wall and those ion shells do something differently. They're actually responsible for information about pain to be either transmitted or not to the brain. Or further down the line, depending on what species we look at, um, changes how genes are expressed, whether they're activated or switched off. 
And if we understand that mechanism and its particular, so we could identify the specific ion channels responsible for this information to be transmitted or not. So if we can develop down the line a drug that can specifically either activate or inactivate these channels, we can be, have um, uh, painkillers potentially that are much more targeted so can be much more efficient and selective when it comes to pain management in humans. And lastly, could you take us through the different stages that the project will undergo from here going forward? You mean what happened in the past now? What, what was, oh, no, no, no. What? So from, from, oh, from so here what going forward, what are we going to do? That's a good question. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there's many avenues, essentially, um, to pursue this further. Uh, it could be, obviously, this is more on the medical and pharmacological side now, and um, that people look at the receptors that regulate the ion channels more and see because a lot of these are built from proteins and they have worked like a lock and key system. So they now need to go and design a drug that would fit that lock specifically to switch it either on or off. That's one way it could be going. It could be also to further understand down the line why we have the differences between different species. So this is more an evolutionary road that we're taking to see that we maybe can identify factors that have affected the selection. And a lot of these mechanisms are present in humans as well. So if we understand them better in these animals, then we can also do things such as gene therapy, for example. Um, I mean, that's way, way in the future, and it's obviously a lot of ethical considerations that need to go into this, but that would be potentially another option. Certainly here in Pretoria, we're very much more interested in, you know, kind of what other physiological adaptations, because all of this physiology, the, the animals have found many different routes to deal with the same problem. Um, so that can give us many different ideas how to deal with problems that we experience and that relate, in this case, to pain mm-hmm. um, management. All right. Dr. Litterman, thank you very much for joining us on the line. And uh, we look forward to seeing where this research leads us. Thank you. And that was Dr. Heike Litterman, a zoologist at the University of Pretoria in South Africa. The time is now 17.30 Central African time. Let's cross on over to the news desk where Ona Lintzins is standing by to give you your latest news headlines. Leaders of the protest movement against military rule in Sudan are stopping all contact with the military and call for a general strike. Three suspects accused of belonging to terrorist cell affiliated to the Islamic State group have been arrested in Morocco. And an Iraqi court has sentenced to death two more French nationals, increasing the number to 12 for joining the Islamic State group. Channel African News, I am Onelensinzi. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kulitranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa.
This is Africa Digest. In commemoration of the International Biodiversity Day, belatedly in the capital Harare, the United Nations Development Programme expressed concern over the depletion of nature. International Biodiversity Day is commemorated annually on the 22nd of May, but in Zimbabwe, the UNDP had to wait for the UN report titled Nature's Dangerous Decline, Unprecedented Species Extinction Rates Accelerating and the Governmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services uh, report speaks of humans as the main destroyers of nature, resulting in a huge threat to global food security. Simon Ochemwa reports. Nature is declining globally at rates unprecedented in human history, and the rate of species extinction is accelerating with grave impacts on the people around the world. This was revealed in Harare on Friday during the belated International Biodiversity Day commemorations under the theme, Our Diversity, Our Food, Our Health. Expansion of human settlements, increased demand for agricultural land, poaching and destruction of wetlands and water sources are contributing largely to the biodiversity destruction. Speaking during the commemoration, the United Nations Development Programme, UNDP country representative Georges Van Montford said the recent IPBS report is shocking. Nobody really talked about biodiversity for a long time except maybe in gatherings like this. But I think it's gathering pace now in, in the regular community as well because of that alarming pace of, of disappearing biodiversity. We just assumed, I imagine in the past, that food would always be there, water would always be there and good for us to drink. And I think we're realizing now that that's not the case, right? We're seeing both in, in cities and in countries far away from here that even the air we breathe is no longer a guarantee. The air will be there, but how polluted it is and how, how detrimental that is for our health is, is a realization we see now in the big cities uh, from China to the US to Europe. Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, IPBES report, revealed a few days ago speaks of food security threats owing to the destruction of nature. Georges explained. So what is important for us to look at both those visible changes, but also the ones that are less visible, the smaller changes, right? In 2014, three quarters of the world's crop production came from just nine crops, right? In Zimbabwe, we often talk about the dependence on maize, right? But if you look at it globally, nine crops provide us with three quarters of the world's food production. And if you think about it, sort of any threat towards that, right, that, that biodiversity, diversity in crops is really not there, right? So a threat we see like a drought here, We've seen the fall army worm in southern Africa having a huge impact on, on, on our food production. Large quantity of, of crops are lost. And therefore biodiversity also in the way we do agriculture is important for us. Right? And, and finding ways that we can introduce crops that are adaptable to the current situation. Right? While the human population is ballooned, putting pressure on the land for settlement, land-based habitats has fallen by at least 20%, mostly since 1900. At least 9% of all domesticated breeds of mammals used for food and agriculture had become extinct by 2016, with the least 1,000 more breeds still threatened. Dr. Chipangura Chirara, a UNDP project manager, said. 
Natural ecosystems have declined by 47% on average relative to the earliest estimated states. So whatever the people started recording, when you look at it now and compare to the first records, you have a decline of 47% in natural ecosystems. Extinction risk, approximately 25% of species are already threatened with extinction. This is globally. And when you come to the local level, I think it's probably more serious than the global scale. In terms of ecological communities and biotic integrity, the abundance of naturally present species has declined by 23% on average in terrestrial ecosystems. This is on, on, on the global scale. Dr. Chipangura added, If you look at the major species, elephants, buffalo, impala, kudu, rhino, in terms of animal poaching reported by national parks in their annual reports, those are the numbers between uh, 2009 and 2012. But then we tried to put a figure to it in terms of how much did we lose in, in, in monetary terms. So in between 2009 and 2012, on average, from what we got from national parks, from their annual reports, we lost $47.5 million in monetary terms to poaching. However, the situation in Zimbabwe is more serious compared to the global status. So far, Zimbabwe has lost a large chunk of wildlife. There is massive deforestation and siltation, resulting in water shortages, water pollution, drought, and floods. Edward Samurio from the Minister of Environment Said. The theme aims to spread awareness of the dependence of our food systems, nutrition, and health on biodiversity and health ecosystems. The theme also recognizes the diversity provided by our natural systems for human existence and well-being on Earth while contributing to sustainable development goals. Despite the high level and the global significance of biodiversity in Zimbabwe, the country faces multiple challenges for development associated with the biodiversity loss, ecosystem degradation, and climate change consequences. These challenges include deforestation, poaching and illegal wildlife trade, human-wildlife conflict, and retaliatory killings and climate change consequences. For example, in Zimbabwe, tobacco farming has contributed to 50% of deforestation due to dependence on fuel wood for curing by 90% of tobacco farmers. In Harare, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. South Africa joined the rest of the globe yesterday in celebrating the 32nd National Cancer Survivors Day. The annual awareness campaign was established to recognize and celebrate those who have battled cancer and won and to help bring hope to those still battling the disease. More from Kim Webster, Head of Communication at the non-profit organization, the Sunflower Fund. You know, unfortunately in South Africa, our statistics are very skewed because of the, you know, the fact that there are so many differences in terms mm. of people in private healthcare and public healthcare and so forth. Yeah. And also with regards to cancers, there are so many different cancers and particularly with the Sunflower Fund, we focus on blood cancer specifically. So, you know, within that you're looking at various types of leukemia, for example. You know, as much as there are survivor stories that we mm. do have to tell, it's very difficult to quantify in South Africa specifically what that statistic looks like. Um, we do know, however, that every 35 seconds, though, somebody is diagnosed with sure. a blood cancer. So that is a very scary statistic to consider. Now, Kim, if we look at a cancer just on a global scale now, I mean, what sort of a significant strides have been made in the past few years, if any? And is a cure something that is far-fetched at the moment? 
You know, no, so Q is not far-fetched at all. And I think that is one thing that we try and communicate when we do awareness is that cancer can be beaten. And as much as there are different types of cancers and the stage of diagnosis is very important, it's important for people to realize that the fight is still ongoing. There are people who might have faced a diagnosis recently who is in the midst of that fight, but it's the stories of hope that we have to tell to you know, our survivors and families that have been through this journey that ultimately keeps people just in the right mental frame of mind to make sure that they tackle this fight you know, with the positivity and the hope that there is you know, an end to the battle in sight. And research is ongoing all the time. So if you look at just, for example, with regards to blood cancers, you know, if we increase the amount of people that get to the point of being able to have a stem cell transplant, that ultimately is the only hope of cure, mm. you know, for the blood cancer. Mm. And there we need to focus on the fact that we need to sort of make a selfless decision as individuals to decide to register as stem cell donors to give that person the hope of life. Now, I mean, you've spoken about, of course, the resources and research that's going into getting to that place where we can say definitely here's something that will certainly deal with this. But when we talk about challenges that cancer survivors and those who are still undergoing treatment, what are those main ones that you can sort of highlight? You know, the challenges vary, again, from access to health care. You know, we don't realize how difficult it is for people to even get to treatment in the first place. So access to health care and just access to information of where help is available is an important thing. The other thing that we also find is, you know, we, for example, the Sunflower Fund has a partnership with CHOC where we refer patients to them that come via us that are in need of the peripheral support. So when you look at somebody battling a cancer, it's not just the individual that is ill that is being impacted. There's an entire family being impacted because oftentimes people need to travel to a different city or a different province for their treatment. So then that family is incurring cost of, you know, needing to find accommodation in the city that they are now receiving treatment in. You know, just access to meals and other kind of support, support groups. You know, all of this, it's such a big picture and it's such a big ripple effect of impact. And that's how we always say to people, you know, it's not just one individual whose life has been impacted. It's a family, it's a community. So the support that they need is for us as communities to come and rally around and offer the peripheral support because oftentimes medical treatment is being made available but it's the peripheral support that doesn't exist. So, you know, that is a big thing. We try and connect people to support groups all the time. You don't realize the emotional toll it takes on a family when a member of the family is battling a disease or battling a diagnosis. For the benefit of our listeners, Kim, for those who are unaware, what is it that the Sunflower Fund and really what has become your contribution in this space? The Sunflower Fund forms part of the Cancer Alliance, so we work with a lot of cancer-related organizations within South Africa just to spread awareness, provide some advocacy and support to give people a better access to treatment. But then our role within that alliance so as an independent organization, we recruit blood stem cell donors specifically to focus on helping those that are fighting blood cancers. Like I said earlier, the only treatment option that would sometimes be left for them is to have a stem cell transplant. So we actively recruit donors that are willing to be, you know, a donor for somebody for whom they might be a match to donate their stem cells. And we're doing that continent-wide. So at the moment, we've been operating in South Africa for the past 19 years. And this year, at the start of this year, we branched out into Kenya, Ghana, and Nigeria 
and soon Namibia as well. So what we do is we literally are looking for people that are willing to say that I'm willing to add my name to a database of stem cell donors so that when a patient is in need of a transplant, I will, you know, if I am a match, I'll be willing to undergo a basic process so that they can get a donation of stem cells and ultimately in that way be cured of the blood cancer that they are fighting. Well, Kim, you've certainly taught us a thing or two, and I'm sure that our listeners will certainly be sending a lot of questions our way. For those who'd like to learn more about what you do, how do they engage you, and are there platforms that they can find extra information, possibly online? Yes, definitely. They can visit our website, which is www.sunflowerfund.org. You know, all of our contact details are on our contact page. If you are in South Africa, we've got a toll-free number that you can call us on which is 0800-121082. We've also got information about our donor centers in the other countries that we operate, so you can find the local contact numbers for the donor centers in those countries on our website. And then lastly, you can contact us via WhatsApp, which is 074-715-0212, and we can respond to your WhatsApp message as well. And that was Kim Webster, Head of Communication at the Sunflower Fund in South Africa, talking to Zikonamiso. 17.44 Central African time. Hello, Tracy. How are you? I'm very well. And you? I'm very well, Trace. Now, we hear that the Zimbabwean president is going to travel to Australia later this month in a bid to spread his Zimbabwe is open for business message. In your opinion, do you think Zimbabwe is open for business or are there still things that they still need to do in order to open themselves up for business? Or do they actually need to open themselves up for business in order to fix things in the country? You know, it's a catch-22. Uh-huh. Because they've got to fix things in the country in order to get that business in. Yeah. But then they can't fix it without the business. Of course. But anyway, 17.45 Central African time. Let's cross on over to the money desk. Here is Tracy Boomgaard with your latest economics news. Thank you, Samora. $1.2 billion have been pledged to help Mozambique recover from the devastation caused by cyclones Idai and Kenneth. The total amount needed is $3.2 billion overall. The UNDP says it will work with President Philippe Nyusi, who was at the conference and the Government on Transparency and Accountability, and to ensure the funds are well spent on reconstruction projects. South Africa's ruling party, the ANC, says the trade war between China and the U.S. will have painful ripples in the South African economy. The party's chair for peace and security, Tony Yengeni, says the party is concerned about the trail of destruction that will be left behind by the persisting tensions between the two big economies. At the same time, U.S. President Donald Trump is currently in the U.K., while President Xi Jinping of China is expected to visit Russia before the end of the week. Anything that happens between them of a negative nature affects us. It doesn't only affect them, it affects us. It affects our currency, it affects our trade, our exports and imports. It affects our growth strategy. So we are concerned. We hope that the United States of America and China will find themselves in a negotiated um, environment where Whatever differences they have, they can resolve through negotiations.
Zimbabwe's President Emerson Mnangagwa will travel to Australia later this month in a bid to spread his Zimbabwe's open for business message. Mnangagwa, together with a delegation comprising of ministers from the Mines and Minerals Department, Public and Broadcast Services and other key mining industries, will attend a mining investment summit, seminar rather in Perth. The country is hoping to find investment opportunities to revive the alien economy. Earlier, the International Monetary Fund gave Zimbabwe the thumbs up to the economic reforms the country has implemented. This month, Mango Airlines introduced flights from Lonseria Airport in Johannesburg direct into Zanzibar. This new route will allow for passengers from Durban and Cape Town to connect and make the trip to the island of Zanzibar on the same day. Previously, flights from Aratambo departed too early for connecting passengers. SAA's low-cost airline, Mango Airlines, is the only carrier to fly directly to the island. Zanzibar has a population of around 1.5 million people, and their economy is based on tourism and international trade. Tourism contributes more than 80% of Zanzibar's foreign exchange earnings and constitutes 27% of its GDP. The direct flights are a result of bilateral talks with respective governments, as Mango Marketing Director Benedict Shinzubani explains. South Africa has been very strong in fostering relationships uh, with the Tanzanian government. And as a result of that, uh, South Africa was able to obtain a license to fly out of uh, South Africa, Johannesburg, to Zanzibar directly. And this is the first in the sub-Saharan um, region. And that, that shows that uh, we cemented our relationship. Nairobi has been named Africa's leading business travel destination. The Kenyatta International Convention Center scooped a top award at Africa's leading meetings and conference destination at this year's 26th Annual World Travel Award. The KRCC went up against Cairo Convention Center in Egypt, Cape Town Convention Center in South Africa, the Durban Convention Center in South Africa, Kigali Convention Center in Rwanda, Palais des Congress Marrakesh in Morocco, and the Santon Convention Center in South Africa. This is the first time it's participated in the awards and took the award from Durban, who have held it for the last nine years. The U.S. dollar is trading at 357.66 Nigeria Naira, 10.75 Botswana Pula at 99.76 Kenyan Shilling and at 13.16 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 3.91 Brazilian Hale, 65.42 Russian Ruble, 69.39 Indian Rupee, 6.93 Chinese Yuan and at 14.54 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 78 pence to the British pound and at 89 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,311 and platinum at $801 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $61.32 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. And right now it's time for us to cross on over to the sports desk. Here is Neto Chimani.
Thank you, Samara. A very good afternoon, sport fans. Starting off with cricket news. Pakistan have set England a formidable total of 349 to win in their Cricket World Cup clash at Trent Bridge in Nottingham today. Spared on by Mohamed Hafiz's 84 of just 61 balls, Pakistan were particularly harsh on England's new boy, Jofra Archer, who went for 79 runs in his 10 overs without a wicket. They ended on 348 for 6. England, who is beat South Africa in their opening game, have it all to do with the bat. On to football news. Globetrotting FIFA president Gianni Infantino, said to be re-elected on a post on Wednesday, will have plenty of unfinished business in his second mandate, having seen his grandiose plans for soccer partly frustrated in his first term. The Swiss lawyer has visited dozens of countries, from Sao Tome and Principe to Papua New Guinea, swept away much of the administration of disgraced predecessor Sepp Blatter, mingled with heads of state and introduced revolutionary technology into the game since taking charge in February 2016. I think it's uh, now or never. Uh, now is the opportunity. Now we have to take this opportunity. Now we have to take the turn. Uh, we have to make a better FIFA. We have to work for football all together in a united way, in a positive way. And uh, this is the right moment to do that. Yet some feel Infantino has gone too fast for his own good, while his plans have alarmed traditionalists and upset powerful European clubs. Infantino succeeded his first major reform when he less than one year after his election. His plans to increase the World Cup from 32 to 48 teams from 2026 onwards was easily passed by the FIFA Council. It will be quite a challenge, to say it uh, diplomatically correct, to have 48 teams only in, uh, in Qatar 32. It's of course possible that's what is going to happen, but if we can incru- increase it to 48 and make the world happy, then we should try it. Kenya national football team captain Victor Wanyama and 10 other players who were left behind or were to connect with Harambe stars from their bases are expected to land in Paris, France between today and Wednesday this week to join the camp in France. The first part of the team, led by head coach Sebastian Mine, departed for Paris on Friday, where the team preparations for Afghan 2019 are ongoing. Speaking after leading his charges to their first training session in France, Mine said the players we arriving this week are critical to his plans, including Wanyama. I will let him some rest two days, but uh, Monday evening, uh, no, Monday the four, the four morning he will be there. He has to be there. He's the captain. And finally, in athletics news. The Swiss, the Swiss Supreme Federal Court has suspended the International Association of Athletics Federation's IAAF regulations affecting Casta Semenya's ability to run. Semenya has challenged a rule forcing her to lower her testosterone levels to compete with women, even as judges labeled the regulations discriminatory. Her lawyer, Craig Knott, says the court ordered the suspension on Monday. He says they had filled both an appeal to the ruling and an application to suspend the regulation. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and ETO Chemani.
This is Africa Digest. And that's one hour of Africa Digest down. We've only got one more hour to go, but unfortunately you'll have to wait until 1900 hours Central African time to hear this voice again. From myself, Samora Magesi, producer Leander Maume, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you so much for listening. For comments on the show, send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or send us a WhatsApp message to plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven. You can also tweet us at channelafrica1. Taking us to the top of the hour is Mama by KidX featuring The Legacy. From us here in Johannesburg, we'll see you later.